Welcome to Tea Break with Vivian Cosimir. Vivian and her guests are here to help you empower yourself and open your mind to higher realizations. Now, here is Vivian. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this September podcast on What the Quark Do We Know? My slogan, if coffee wakes you up, tea awakens you. But for this special podcast, I will go even further and I will say, if tea awakens you, then what do you awaken to? Be careful with your answer. I am Vivian Casimir, and I have the pleasure to be here with two great masters who are sharing with us their perspective on the don't know space of consciousness. As I explained in the introduction of this episode, Western science now concurs with what spirituality has always said. The Indra's net is the holographic conscious field of the universe in which we exist and are even made of. Wonderful. But then what? Knowing does not make us more conscious and compassionate beings. And what does it mean to our regular life? How can we deepen our practice to resonate with this new consciousness, be in it? With Zen master Bobby Rhodes and Ricky master Wendy Lipson, we are looking at the space of don't know mind where true consciousness and healing spring. With Bobby, we address the don't know mind in Zen teaching with a series of questions about Zen that we don't hear often. And after the break, with Wendy, we will take Reiki to its spiritual level and shed light on the concept of healing in the new consciousness. So welcome, Bobby, to this tea break with discussion. You are the head Zen master of the Quantum School of Zen. You have been in the practice for a long time and uh, you have seen the ups and downs of practitioners and have experienced a lot yourself. I love the way you approach and explain Zen concepts so naturally and positively. So thank you for joining us. Just to explain to the listeners why I decided to bring the don't know concept to the discussion. We all are, are happy with this merging of science and spirituality about the universe as one consciousness field. But it seems to me that we just keep it as a concept to flirt with and not as a great sign to start or deepen our spiritual practice. The 21st century is about true oneness. We hear that everywhere. And, uh, but are we deepening it? Are we starting a practice? So we need to attain oneness, not just talk about it. How do we attain it? That's the journey of the don't know mind I want to share with the listeners. So Bobby, perhaps a few words about yourself? About myself, you just talked about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a lot of faith and uh, trust in the Zen practice, so I've stayed with it since I was 27, and I'm 75 now, so that time just flew, really. And uh, I've never been disappointed in, in, the, in the practice and how it's helped my life and helps others. Wow. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If we go straight to the subject, what is don't know mind from a Zen perspective? And how can we start the journey to don't know? When I first met Zen Master Sung Song in uh, 1972, he he was a he's a teacher from he passed away in 2004, and uh, he was my teacher and still is. Um, <clears throat> 
And he brought with him the koan practice of practicing with, uh, uh, in Japanese we say koan, and in Korean they say kongan, spelled it a little bit differently. But it's um, a practice of asking a question, and then the teacher asks the student a question, and the, then the student uh, responds. And when I first came in for my first koan interview, um, Zemata Sung Sung asked me, um, what is Buddha? And I was 24 years old, and I he and I'm I was so shocked that he would ask me, who was a nobody, a brand new student, what is Buddha? And I went, I just shrugged my shoulders and looked. I was embarrassed that he would. I said, I don't know, I don't know. And then he said, Oh, good. And that was like really um, shocked me that he's when I said I don't know. He he smiled at me and said, That's good. Then he said, I ask you again, what is Buddha? And then I I said, oh, I don't know. He goes, Well, take away the I, just don't know. And that made sense to me. You know, he said, just don't know. Don't don't say I don't know. And then he taught me this technique in this very first interview of when he asked me what is Buddha, this whole process took probably 10, 15 minutes. When he asked me what is Buddha, he wanted me to hit the floor with the palm of my hand really hard, just bang, hit the floor. And I thought, well, why does he want me to do that? But he just was being kind and patient. He said, I'm going to ask you what is Buddha, and you hit the floor. So so he said, what is Buddha? And I hit the floor. He goes, harder, hit it harder. So <laughs> so I, he said, I, he said, what is Buddha? And I hit the floor a little harder. And he's smiling. He goes, oh, very good. Very good. And then he asked me again, what is Buddha? I hit the floor again. And he just, wonderful. And so it felt really like I was getting this affirmation for um, being kind of stupid, you know, just hitting the floor. <laughs> but it felt good. It was like, I. he asked me what is Buddha? And it, it, he didn't want me to think in between the hit and the question. So if he saw that I had eye movement, like I was thinking, then he'd say, no, that's a bad hit. But if he just asked me, I immediately just hit. Then he said, ah, oh, that's good. So I got right away that I wasn't supposed to think after he asked me what is booty. I was just supposed to bang the floor. So I, that went on for the, my next three interviews. So I would say for about two weeks, I, I had that experience with him of being very affirmed by just learning how not to think before I hit. And he'd ask me various questions and I just would hit. And then after uh, after a while, after about my fourth interview, he started to say, okay, now what? After I hit, he goes, now what? <laughs> and then that would give me, um, what do you mean, now what? I thought I was doing great with just hitting. I thought that was 100%. You know, he goes, it's only halfway. It's only 50%. So, <laughs> so he's like pulling the rug out from underneath your intellect, you know, just boom. So, yeah, it's easy just to hit the floor and, and feel good about that. But then, then there was another sophistication to the answer to the koan that was the other 50%. So that's mm -hmm. the beginning of my really recognizing how helpful it was just to hit the floor. It's, it made me stop being nervous and it made me be very present with him. Uh, uh, so, okay. So you would, yeah, you would define then the don't know as not thinking space then? Yes, before thinking. Before thinking space. <clears throat> that, yeah, he, yeah, we always say that, before thinking. Oh, thank you. So, and we, and when you could see if you train that way, it's a little bit like karate or tennis or anything where you train just to listen for the return, you know, and I always think about tennis because it's such a rapid 
fast reaction you have to have to to the person who's returning the ball. You have to just, you have to be in don't know space to see where their feet are placed and the sound of the ball and where you think they're they're hitting, what angle they're hitting back to you. So it's uh, it's really there. There a, a, a lot of athletes are in that don't know space when they're when they're waiting you know or, or they're shooting a basket and they're just there's all this opposition to get they have the de- defense opposing them but they just mm-hmm. have to be right in there with a certain body movement and when they're gonna when they're gonna fake it when they're gonna actually jump up and it's it's fascinating to watch this don't know consciousness in, in sports but mm-hmm. they have it they're not thinking you know they're in that mm-hmm. hit mode in that okay. moment, in that uh, one moment. Uh, oh, that's interesting the way you describe it because uh, it makes it real and not just a spiritual fancy concept. Yeah, it, it's true. And it's like saying uh, when something happens to you in life, it's hit the floor, hit the don't know before reacting, you know? Yes, in be settled. Time. And it's not exactly. even, a, it's beyond a hit, it's a settledness. You, you, you're just, you're settled in that not knowing. That It's not a... It's it's better than a hit. I mean, it's just you, it's you start to train your mind to not know what, even without the hit. Just settle. Mm-hmm. Just be with, be with just now. And there's a spaciousness there where you're just attentive and listening and hearing. Hmm. I have a quote here from Zen uh, Master Sung Sang that we all know very well, and uh, I'm going to read it. Our true nature cannot be found in books and academic studies because our true nature is before speech and words. It is before thinking. If you find your before thinking point, then it is possible to attain your true self. So a long time ago, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. This is where philosophy begins. If you are not thinking, then what? This is when Zen practice begins. And that's yes. beyond word, speech, concepts. You, we drop all of that and then bang. Yeah. I and that. I have a very important point to make with that because I heard him say that probably <laughs> 300 times at least, you know, because I went to all of his talks and I needed to keep hearing that and hearing that and hearing that. You can, you can, you can understand, oh, that's wonderful. And you can, I, right away, I understood, oh, you, th- you think. If you don't think, then what? But Descartes said, "I think, therefore I am." Then, yeah, that that's like that makes sense conceptually. If you you make I, you know, because I thought, there I am, and um, but I needed to hear that over and over. And a lot of people will read a good Zen book or they'll do a couple of retreats and then they walk away, and that's not going to that's not going to stick. So I, I guess I'm making the point very early, but um, mm-hmm. it's very important to make the point to whatever you decide, if you trust it, stick with it. Because you need to hear it over and over and over. I, one time I explained to Zen, and that's just a song. I said, you keep saying the same thing. And he said, yeah, I'm going to keep saying it until you really understand it. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true yeah. because I can see myself in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. There's, I, I read somewhere, I'm going to paraphrase it, sorry, but I read somewhere a great uh, sentence about that. It says, uh, because we ask very often, what am I? That's our starting point. So the thing is, what am I in Zen is not about finding an answer. It's about dissolving the I. 
So that's uh, about just what you said. Yes. Drop yeah, the eye. Drop the eye. Yeah. And you know, for some people asking what an eye is too esoteric, it's too personal almost because they, they can't get away from their eye identification, not the self and other idea. So they they I've seen students get not do well with what am I because it, it kind of um, makes them uncomfortable. So if they ask, what is this? It's more helpful. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing, I and this. You're still, if you're external, you have this and that, or I and not I. You have to drop that that opposite idea. Uh, but I just wanted to make that point, too, because I is kind of threatening for people sometimes, <laughs> although I think it's very effective. But as I said, you can't, you, that's why it's so important to have a teacher, because students have different, we all, not just students, people have different needs and different neuroses, different fears. And so they have to have the right technique when they practice, whatever they practice. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Something as subtle as this and I, that that can make a big difference for someone. You know? Okay. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Oh, thank you for pointing that. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean? We hear that often, attain your true self. It's a question that we don't ask often because we think we know what it means, but we understand it from a dualistic and limited mind. So what does it mean when we hear that in spirituality or in Zen, in Buddhism, attain your true self? Because we think of, oh, there's a list of steps I have to do to attain it, you know? What is it from you, from your perspective? To attain your true self means to listen. You, you, you are already Buddha. So if you listen, um, you'll hear like what to lean into. You, you, you already have it. We're just not listening. We're not listening. So it's not this voice that we hear. It's not, a, it's not an auditory voice. But if we listen, if we don't know, if we go into that not knowing space where we're just looking and asking and paying attention, then, then we'll know what to lean into. Um, it's a very important point. Uh, I remember being in high school, and I, I just we my father was a naval officer, so we were moving from city to city quite often, and um, so I was always struggling in school to be recognized, just peer you know mm -hmm. peer approval and the, the usual thing. If you're brand new in a school, I went through a lot of that, and and I remember just one time I was walking down the hall, and this this thing said to me. Because I was just in my don't know, like, oh, here I go again, you know, nobody knows me, and what am I going to do in this school? And and then it said, Bobby, you can do anything you want. And it was like, I don't know where that came from, but wow. I, there was some part of me that knew that I could do anything I wanted. And so I ran for an office that I won, because it was just an ego thing, but I needed that ego. So Zen doesn't mean get rid of the ego. You have to have a healthy ego and, and know that you can do things, that you can listen, and and listen to that true voice that, that says, oh, you can do anything. I, that made so much... I, I just couldn't believe that that happened to wow. me. And so then I just went home and I made some posters and I ran for office. And <laughs> I don't know. I had a good slogan. It was stupid. It was a little high school office. But I, you know, it was like to, to win was like a validating thing that set me to believe in myself. But it can't be just ego. You start to believe in that voice, that listening voice. Exactly. Exactly. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. People are interested in meditation 
very often, it, of course, to end suffering in a broad sense of suffering. That's what brings people to Zen or any practice. And, uh, and they have read a lot about meditation. I am one of them, I must say. Knowing a lot about the subject gives people a sense of being in control somehow, feeling good because you know about the subject. But knowing is not enough for self-transformation. It's like you need to forget or drop everything you've learned to start from a different angle. So what are your thoughts on that? Why, for example, why meditate? Why is meditation and what it is not? You know, well, the, again, the... my Samantha Sung Song told us from the very beginning, um, don't read any books. From the very beginning, don't read any books about philosophy or Zen or any religion. Just you can read not you know good novels or something if you want to, but don't don't read about religion, philosophy. And um, I didn't mind because I wasn't. I, I was I had already read some things and I just felt like I was going to believe I was going to trust him and so he wanted just a, that's like a, you're on a diving board and like when you're about to jump off the board to make your dive you're not going to be reading a manual on how to keep your balance and how to do this certain kind of flip you're going to have to trust you know your energy and, and your, your your intuition and um so that's what he said don't don't read other people's speech you you have it and the buddha said that you already have it so just be in the not knowing place just bounce off the board i keep referring to sports but i feel like it's pretty impressive what people can do but you know but you probably have another question after this but the thing that that was i was very curious about some of these fantastic divers and tennis champions and basketball champions, they don't have an, an iota of compassion, some of them. There's a lot of I, my, me, even though they attained the hit. So I think <laughs> you have a question for me about that probably is why don't people become compassionate when they have all of this beautiful don't know? Oh, you know? well, let's address it right now. Yeah. I think okay. this is a very, no, but this is a very good point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So how do you find... We, I mean, it's very important in in, in uh, Mahayana Buddhism and Zen Buddhism to um, find a vow, find your vow, and have a direction. And so the vow in Buddhism is is to save all people from suffering, and the direction is to just to completely stay in your training, uh, which means stay in your life, stay in your don't know, and and then lean into your believing in yourself. And, and knowing what your talent is. So it can be through anything. It, can, it doesn't matter if you have to make money, then whatever profession you pick, you can do, have such a huge, huge effect on people by doing it well and by loving people and, mm. and, and approaching people and being kind. I mean, on every level of, of your work that you do. And also, of course, you can become a Dharma teacher and do your best to help other people learn how to do it. But um that comes from not when you hit and don't know, and you have that space, you will begin to intuitively grow in your compassion and your vow and your direction. But as I said earlier, people will just kind of get a good feeling and they'll get it and then they'll stop training. So you have to continue the training yeah. for your entire life. It doesn't mean living in a Zen center, but it means having a practice every morning like do something. I don't care if it's only 10 minutes of sitting, but call yourself to account with, am I coming, bouncing off from don't know into, into a compassionate life, a directed life, something that, that, that feels true to me, 
you know. Oh, I like I like the way you explain it. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. The you're doing it, Vivian. Look practice. what you're doing. You know, you're doing. <laughs> no, you're, yeah, you're, but, you're, you're opening very... people up with your podcasts, and you're you're <laughs> very you know you're very meticulous about it. So I really appreciate yeah. that because we forget sometimes, you know, and and it's important to be reminded. You know, we mm -hmm. we overlook things sometimes because, okay, I do it. You know, I look at myself in the mirror every day. Okay, this is me. But the first, who is me? Who is I? But, you know, it's like we need to be reminded in that sense. Yeah. So, uh, which brings me to the next question about um, what what uh, what is meditation? People think of meditation as something that will give them well-being and health and you know the the very uh um, as you say general understanding in culture but zen is not visualization in meditation <laughs> you see what i mean so uh how would you in a simple way define define what is zen meditation it's attentiveness it's paying attention and it can be an action it doesn't need to be with sitting so it's attention, attention, attention all the time. Pay attention. And so that's not tiring. People think, oh, how can I do that? That sounds like a lot of work. It's no work. The work is because we 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 distort things and then things become confusing. Then we have to work ourselves out of that distortion. But if we're paying attention constantly, then there's going to be so many less, uh, there's going to be so much more intuition and so much more skill that goes into our moment to moment life. You know, if you're, if you're cutting wood and you cut your finger, that's because you weren't paying attention. It's, mm. it's the only reason you would cut your finger when you're cutting wood is somehow you, you're, you're, it's not a bad thing, but you might have been thinking about what your next move is or something. What, why are you making this thing with the wood? But you've got to just do that cut 100% watching where your fingers are and the grain of the wood. That That's a little teeny thing that someone like lops off the end of their finger, but that didn't have to happen. That was all because they weren't paying attention. And so that goes into psychological pain, too. People are in relationships, and they're not paying attention. So they hurt people. They hurt their spouse, mm -hmm. or they hurt just a person they're working with professionally, just because they weren't paying attention to the person's uh, body uh, reaction to them, their facial expression, um, the What's going on? For what and for whom are you having this conversation? So it works in all aspects of our life. If we're attentive, we'll notice the response we're getting from something. And that's a very incredible dance to know how these things go back and forth. But people can trust you. They'll say, oh, this person, I trust them. Well, why do you trust them? They were looking at me. They were they were just staying on point. Like even you could sell someone with a car and, and be honest about it. Sell somebody a car and you can be honest and say, you know, this car, it really is worth this amount because point. And you have to trust those points. <laughs> and and you're and the person trusts you because you trust the points you're making about the car. But if you if you're lying to them, there's gonna be if if that that person's paying attention they're going to catch that you're lying you know because mm. they're using it they're paying attention to you and so it, it it's amazing if you can if you can stay on point and pay attention you will you'll make your life much simpler in so many levels so many oh, parts of your life you know? oh, I, I like it you know it's like uh, highlighting being present in the moment the now 
when you said attention, it's really, it's really that, you know, in the, in that sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. That answers the next question uh, that someone wanted me to ask about what is Zen. I think you just explained it. <laughs> yeah. That sense. Okay. Good. It's very simple. So I can't yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. It's good about demystifying Zen in that sense. Yeah. So there's a quote. I really like that quote from you. There's many quotes you, you gave, but that one I think is really relevant here. Whether you we perceive our experiences as joyful or painful does not matter. The more we awaken, the less we make distinctions. We gradually stop thinking in terms of opposite, like good, bad, health, illness, and simply are with each moment in a clear and open relationship. Our healing, our growth come from being open and awake. Our discomfort, our suffering come from defending and protecting our delusional separate selves. This is a healing process, awakening to the original wholeness of life. Ha. Do you want Wow, to... I said that. I oh. <laughs> You're funny, Bobby. Yeah. Oh, there's many, many, many quotes that I found from you, but that one I think is great because it's about healing and awakening, you know, in, in that sense. And if I go back to my question at the beginning, if tea awakens you, what do you awaken to? Well, that's part of it. You awaken to the original wholeness of life, which starts with you. You have it. You are already, as you said, a Buddha. And, um, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's part of the many scientists like Jude Curivan, uh, a well-known uh, cosmologist, uh, is talking about the the what this oneness, and she says that uh, the biggest I may paraphrase her, but the biggest disease is the the belief of separation. So she talks about healing our disease of separation mm -hmm. you know, in that sense, and which is very at the center of Zen too. Yeah. So what do you think then? That's the thing. It's not Zen or not Zen. It's wisdom. wisdom so okay. people, you know, it's it's like, oh, that's just like Zen. Well, no, Zen is is everything with this. That's it means being awake and wise. It's mm. not particular to Zen. There's wonderful methods mm. of, of waking up, but Zen is the one where I talked earlier about the constant practice. You know, it's it's about discipline and coming to retreats and doing prostrations and doing, you know, we have a lot of chanting, a lot of prostrations, a lot of, a lot of stuff that keeps bringing our mind back and back and back. And we, we just need to, we have to train, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I can't stress it enough. You yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, for Zen, speaking of our school, for Zen practitioners, they are our four great vows in Zen. And, well, uh, People don't know about it, but we're gonna. I can mention them. But uh, about they carry an opposition. It's done on purpose. Is to make us cut through. So, if you can give some examples, like the four great vows, I can read them, and you can pick two and explain why there is an opposition there and why we have to cut through that. The first one: sentient beings are numberless. We vow to save them all. Delusions are endless. We vow to cut through them all. Teachings are infinite. We vow to learn them all. The Buddha way is inconceivable. We vow to attain it. So that 
One, that's four vows. They're all the same vow. If you think about it, if you read them a few times, uh-huh. Uh-huh. it's all the same vow. If you cut through all delusions and they're infinite, you're already um, saving all people from suffering because you're just willing to cut through your delusions. You're willing to know and uh, be aware that you're not always on point. So you're going to just, we have a saying, seven times fall down, seven times stand up, eight times stand up. And that's kind of a little joke because you only have to stand up seven times if you fall down seven times. But it says eight times, and that's the infinity, eight times stand up. Be willing to just walk into the fire over and over and over again to, in order. Why would you walk into the fire to clear yourself of delusions and save all people from suffering? You know, it's the same thing. So um, they're not separate, you know. Does it, does it make sense to you? Yeah, you know, okay. I, I can, uh, yeah, I can. Uh, repeating them over and over again, it's like at some point, oh, yeah, it clicks, you know, uh, differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that we do in our practice is koan. So um, can you just give an example of, of first, what is a koan? What's the goal of koan? as a practice and let's give listeners a koan so they can uh, live with that well as i said earlier um when when we were asked um when i was asked what is buddha that's a koan you know we we have this what is buddha and then we think maybe like the the figure behind you, you oh you this is a podcast <laughs> Vivian, uh, you have a, a buddha behind you a beautiful gold face of a buddha <laughs> and some people think oh well that's buddha there's this person that lived you know a long time ago and uh but that's not buddha so we have a saying if you see the buddha kill the buddha because you don't want to have an external buddha so uh what is buddha is is like a wonderful koan because you hit the floor and you have that emptiness, that spaciousness of not knowing. And then attentively, what what's what's right after that? You know, that's the Buddha, your clear mm-hmm. mind. Your clear, it can be, you know, to say, okay, I'll give this koan. Um, someone has said, Master Dung San, what is Buddha? And he said, dry shit on a stick. Well, how ordinary and almost like disgusting of an answer is that? <laughs> but he actually said that. And so, uh, Master, please teach me, what is Buddha? And they were walking outside, and there was a compost pile with a, a, a stick that turned the compost. And um, so he, 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 at that time, when he was asked, what is Buddha? He was looking at this stick drying in the sun that had shit on it. So he said, dry shit on a stick. And that's just exactly his attentiveness in that moment. So we talk about Zen as ordinary. It's, it's extraordinarily ordinary. You know, and that became a very famous koan because, you know, he said that. It was like, wow. And then the student, I think they they always say, oh, then the student heard that and got enlightenment. Well, maybe that student heard that and got enlightenment because the student saw how extraordinarily ordinary it is. And he's looking for the Buddha outside this moment. And the, and the Zen master oh. was right in the moment. So that's a, guy, a good example. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Extraordinary, ordinary. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Can yeah. you can you give, so the listeners will, will have at the end of the podcast, that koan that I can think of. Can you give them a koan? Well, I'll give that same koan because it's hard to remember these things when you, if you're listening to lots of podcasts. But I'll say the same thing. When Jung Song said... Um, 
was asked, what is Buddha? And he said, dry shit on a stick. The question to that koan is, what did that mean? What did that mean? Okay. So that's, how would you answer that? What did that mean? Oh, wonderful. Okay, good. First, first you hit, and then you, if you don't know the answer, it doesn't matter, just hit, and the answer will come from your intuition, from your listening. From your deep center. I like it. Yeah, your deep center. Oh, that's cool. We didn't talk about that, but that's important. Oh, so let's talk about it. That's part of my (laughs) next question. You know, Zen, uh, for people, (laughs) it's something wonderful that uh, you're going to reach enlightenment and all those ideas about enlightenment. I have many questions, but we can't go over all of them. But uh, that one is the Zen circle people don't hear about that because I wanted also to give people a chance to hear about what they, we don't talk about Zen in a, in a general public. So Zen circle, like the 270 degree or the 90, 180, 270, 360. Can you give a sense of the the process of the... the... Well, when I, again, when Zen Master Sung Sung had, um, I, I don't know if he created that circle or it was made by a teacher before him. I have no idea, but he he just he just kind of laid out, you know, a 360 degree. Of course, a circle always has 360 degrees. And then he then he just marked, uh, quartered it. And so at um, zero would be like the, the worst state of mind, like a horrible demon that all just wants to kill, kill and steal and, and, and torture people. Like the worst uh, human behavior you can imagine would be at zero. And so that area between zero and 90 is a lot of, we call it karma, where people are playing out their egos. And like the, like just the, how deceptive our, I'll speak for the United States, the political system, there's so much confusion, deception and greed going. Mm on in politics and so that's they're all in between zero and 90 you know most of those politicians hopefully not all of them but there's so much ego and 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 desire desire anger and ignorance let's put it that way and then at 90 is when the state uh, state of mind where people realize oh my god i'm not playing with a full deck i'm not completely clear i have an ego i have too much desire i have a lot of fear so this is distorting my life so how do i let go of my fear my anger my ignorance what can I do? And so at 90 is when someone would theoretically look for a practice like yoga, meditation, anything, just somehow Mm. calm down, get it deeper into their Christianity. What is Jesus? What truly is the love of Jesus? Have a koan like that. What is Jesus's love? It doesn't matter, but it puts you into a questioning state and a receptive state Mm. to hear the teachings. So if you do that, you know, from 90 to 180, again, is that area where you're practicing, you're listening, you're learning, you're dropping um, car, uh, karmic um, uh, tethers. You're dropping these things one by one. You don't even notice sometimes when they drop, but mm-hmm. your life begins to change and you have less desire and more clarity. And then at, at 180 is that hit stage where you hit the floor you you become one and you you open up it's it's like a psychedelic experience almost where you it's called the first enlightenment where you just you, you explode and, and you see the quarks you <laughs> what the quark do we know you start to see you you become one with you you realize you are one with the universe but it's a very visceral tangible experience that you're having and it, it might last for a minute or three minutes or four minutes but it's called first enlightenment and uh that's because you dropped so much of your 
karmic tethers that you were able to become one with the universe. But in, in Mahayana Buddhism, you don't stay there. You don't just, oh, I've gotten enlightenment. I've became one with the universe. You have to have that vow in that direction. So you just, you, you continue to train. Now, some people in their training, they'll go down this road where they want special powers. They just, for maybe they think it's going to help other people, but um, I've never actually met anyone and I'm not, don't have any tangible proof about this, but that people could walk on water, they can levitate, they could, they could, their body can um, be in Calcutta and then they could all of a sudden be in, in New York City, they could, they could travel uh what's it called without the body you know i forgot what that's oh, called God. but there, there's 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 reports of people getting these incredible uh, abilities to do these uh, special magical things mm-hmm. um but in in mahayana buddhism zen buddhism we we absolutely skip from 90 to 270 we don't work on that thing because it really doesn't help people that much it, it might impress people but, but you know <laughs> if someone shows me they can walk across the river on top of water they what good does that do me you know like gee how did you learn how to do that and then you'd have to do what they did years and years of fasting and breathing techniques or whatever to learn how to uh, get handle the molecules in their body and that level you know which which is probably a some people are able to do that we just it's so much work and it takes so much training to do that there's no point because it doesn't help anyone so what so from 270 to, to 360 is you have that enlightenment experience at 180 and then 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 from 270 to 360 you're just training 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 to become a more skillful and kinder person in what again is ordinary uh, what are you what are you going to do with your life mm-hmm. I, I I realized that same high school where I realized I could do any I could win this election I also realized at one point I wanted to be a nurse and I I just wanted to do this basic nursing training a three-year diploma program that i had and all my friends were going to these high class universities and stuff and all i wanted to do is to train to be a nurse and i just knew that i didn't compare it to having a high class degree mm-hmm. i wasn't someone who liked to write essays or do do all this studying i just wanted to put my hands on on patients and help them so i felt that thing and that lasted my whole career was doing that putting my hands on people and helping them to to working with illness that was what i always wanted to do and i and i loved it every moment of it um so uh i lost my train of thought well oh that's that area where you, you just find what you you've, you've got you know 80 90 years what are you going to do you know what are you going to do with yourself so at 360 you found your vocation or you found uh, what enough of belief in yourself that you feel this um peace but the peace is only um it's a deep deep peace in your center but you still feel all of the pain in life so that you you get you learn to be responsive and kind and different mm-hmm. all the different ways you can be that way yeah <clears throat> okay i like it it's like going back to the extraordinary of the ordinary exactly exactly yeah. oh yeah no i like it yeah you mentioned 180 we don't have much time but i really want to ask that one uh, you mentioned 180 at the first enlightenment people may ask are, are there different levels of enlightenment? I would answer, cut, <laughs> I hit the floor. <laughs> say, what oh, level are... that's good. Okay, boom, <laughs> hit the floor. Don't right. know. <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's cool. Because the thinking can't help you. It won't help you. 
<laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, last question, quickly. Uh, we hear that uh, from zero to seven years old, now is everywhere people talks about that. That's why I want to mention that. From zero to seven years old, neuroscience, biology, psychologists say that this is a time where all the programs of society, family, ideology, and philosophy, whatever, all the programs are downloaded in the brains of the, chil of the child. And 95% of our regular day is under those subconscious programs. So I don't like this, but it is a proof. It's scientific, whatever, experiment. So my question is, what if children were born in a society where oneness was the norm and not the dualistic mindset of nowadays? So let's imagine um, a society where the, the child is born in oneness, in a society that thinks oneness, would you say then that the child is downloading wonderful programs of oneness and therefore will attain his true self quicker, will be enlightened? Well, first of all, it's impossible. There's a hypothetical idea that they could even be born into a state of oneness with everybody's in oneness. I mean, I can't even, you know, that's not possible. But if they were, um, People are, you know, I, I worked in OBGYN, like I've seen a lot of babies be delivered and every baby comes out differently. Some are screaming, some are smiling, some are totally purple with being freaked out. Other people, other babies are just all pink and chubby and happy. And it's all kinds of creatures being born into this world. And um, they're all different. So it's even if they're born in the state of oneness, they have perfect parents, perfect society, they're going to have their own baggage. And, and it's just, you can't imagine a, a consciousness becoming, being born this uh, pure and open and, and receptive and has no other tethers. I don't think it's possible. And we, nobody understands reincarnation if it is or if it isn't, but it's just pretty obvious that people aren't born with a clean slate. So you you've got to work with that so they could they could taint the oneness just by being a complicated person when they're born i, I just feel like that's really oh, that's true children okay. are all yeah. so different from each other there's a thing you know, called resilience and why do some children have so much resilience and others don't they might be born into a very difficult uh you know place in a lot of crime a lot of confusion a lot of poverty and yet some kids just are so resilient they they get out of it and then other kids get sucked in well where did that come from if they were from the same family the same parents why so i believe that idea of resilience is is very um very part of the quirkiness of this world like somehow people pick up stuff from each lifetime and, and just become mm. incredibly uh, kind and resilient. And we can't measure it. It's, it's a big don't know, obviously. Oh. It's a big don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. I like it. Uh, no, I really like it. Well, then that shows one thing is uh, oneness uh, as a context is not enough. You have your own personal journey to baggage, as you say. But that's a good step if we can at least create a better society with well, that place mind. at 90 degrees you see what your you have your own personal steps at 90 degrees on the circle ah i have issues and then you <laughs> see how you work with them and, and everybody can become the buddha no problem they can be you know everybody can do that it, it, but they have to see it they have to yeah, see it exactly and we know people in this 
present society, they have no, they think they got it all, but they're they're destroying things, they're tainting mm. things from their ego mm. and their desire. It's no, sad. Exactly. It's very sad. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So before we end, do you have any uh, things you want to say to the listeners? I want to say again, you have to pick a practice and do it every day. You don't just listen to these podcasts. It doesn't do you any good. You'll, you'll forget all about everything I said in about 10 <laughs> minutes. So that won't help. You've got to trust your teacher, find a teacher and, and do it for your whole life. Good. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> But also listen again to the podcast. <laughs> Remind yourself. <laughs> Uh, or not, thank... or not. You don't have to. <laughs> You'll still have plenty of customers, Vivian, believe me. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. It's to, to do my contribution, to help this world. That's why oh, I, I want to make it open. So It's thank you. Well, thank we don't you. have much time left. Uh, thank you so much, Bobby, for your time with us. I am sure that listeners have now a better idea of what Zen is and the importance of the don't know mind. So, uh, Hopefully, they'll start their journey, their path, or their practice, or deepen it for those who are already doing it with a cup of tea. And people can learn more and reach you at the quantumzen.org. Is that right? I'm not making any mistake. The website is quantumzen.org. Yes. Good. So to the listeners, stay with us. for a, After the break, we will have a different look at... Uh, the conscious space that opens to healing in oneness with Wendy and Reiki spirituality. Stay tuned. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Set your goals higher and aim for a true transformation in your life. Do not settle for well-being. Be grounded, centered, and raise your consciousness for self-realization. Mayoku Techniques help you start your journey or deepen your practice on a one-to-one -one training. Check the website www.myokucenter.com and together let's make a difference now in your life tune in to the voice america variety channel on the voice america talk radio network voice america variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events arts and entertainment leadership parenting relationships self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. Welcome back to Tea Break with Vivian Cosimir. We hope today's episode is making you feel empowered in many ways. Now, back to the show with Vivian. Welcome back to our discussion on what the quark do we know. And welcome, Wendy. It's a real pleasure to have you with us for a cup of tea. 
Very happy to be here, Viviane. Wonderful. So let's continue to explore the don't know space from a Reiki perspective. It is actually a spiritual space for deep healing. So, Wendy, you are a Reiki master teacher certified in many forms of energy healing for more than 48 years. You also define yourself as an Akashic Records conduit, and you are going to share with us that dimension because it's an important part in your practice. And finally, you are the founder of the Ancient Healing Arts Academy of New York, based in Brooklyn, New York. I would like to start with a quote from you because I like it. <laughs> Reiki can provide a glimpse of light when darkness clouds our vision. It helps us locate a route to return to balance as it reveals the flame within. It can liquefy fear. It can bring a sense, it can bring us, sorry, a sense of hope as it reminds us of the light we truly are. This quote alludes to and again, your words, the elevation of consciousness that is now required to move humanity forward in the 21st century. Ah, what a beautiful introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wendy, let's start with the first question, which is, I ask this question very often to my guests, is how did you end up being a Reiki master? And the second part of it is, after so many years, what has Reiki become for you? Okay, I'll give you the short version of how I became a Reiki master. It's kind of a fun story, uh, but to condense it, um, I came from a household with immense love and kindness on the one hand, and on the other hand, a lot of tyrannical behavior um, of a mentally ill brother. So I had these parents who were infinitely kind and patient. And then every day was wondering what was going to happen next. So um, it, it, it was a dichotomous environment, but it did set the stage for my life's work my passion, my love, and it remains the same this day. So uh, Reiki came to me as a result of having a surgery, and I was left with a lot of pain, and I was trying to find alternative ways of addressing it. So we say that we find Reiki, but I truly believe from my experience, Reiki finds us. Uh. That's and and we, in the beginning, approach it as an individual for our individual purposes. But I also believe in the larger realm, it finds us connecting to what we need in that moment. But there is a broader, broader purpose for becoming one who gives and receives this unlimited healing energy. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, I mean, you are my Reiki master. You trained me. But <laughs> you have been in that field for so many years. So with everything happening in your life and in society, Reiki has become something even deeper for you. Maybe deeper is not the right term, but you know what I mean. Reiki has become something else for you. 
Mm-hmm. So what is Reiki for you now? Uh, well, first, it is um, a healing modality that I think one of the brilliant parts of it is that anyone can do it, that we are already wired to mm. give and receive Reiki. And as the Reiki master teacher, we just reignite the spark. It, we reconnect you to something that is your birthright. Yeah. I so like I love it because it's an entry-level healing path, but also a path to expand our awareness that we are all connected. And that oh. it, in addition to being able to heal physically, emotionally, spiritually, we reconnect to the oneness, we're always connected. It's our awareness of the connection that mm-hmm. it enhances. And in that enhancement, we heal. Uh, yeah, you said something once about uh, your, your intention uh, assisting people in moving toward the point of being able these are your words, being able to be fully present at any given moment. Yes, if we, if we release the pain, the suffering, if we examine beliefs that aren't really ours, that no longer serve us, we are not infested with the past or afraid of the future. So that leaves being able to be fully present. So one of my intentions for facilitating one's healing is that if we can reduce or eradicate the suffering together, if we can locate and release beliefs that are standing in the way, Mm. then we can experience the present fully. We can locate what makes our heart sing we can contribute from that stance of what makes our heart sing, saying mm. that we, in being fully present, that is a goal for healing. And in being fully present, we can also remember who we are, share that beautiful nexus of everything we are and everything we want to do and everything we want to give that's a goal of healing cool oh that's that's cool so the interconnectedness is is definitely part of this yes that's wonderful Mm -hmm. and we have to remember that reiki is also a form of spirituality Let's not forget that. Yeah. Oh, of course. So, which brings me actually to the next question. Is mm-hmm. you, uh, of course, you know, but just for the listeners to frame it, uh, healing in the new consciousness is no longer associated with the absence of disease. Okay, that's the old paradigm. Mm-hmm. It's a mind, body, and soul combination. And as Bobby, the Zen master uh, we spoke to earlier, and Jude Curivan, she's a cosmologist well-known, they both stated in their own way, the biggest disease is the belief of separation from oneness. Oh, I love that sentence, because in Zen we we know that, but the fact that even scientists are saying that nowadays. So as a Reiki master, what are your thoughts on that? How do you experience 
this kind of disease, meaning the split that people feel they are not in oneness. How do you see that in Reiki or with your client or in general? Um, I see it constantly and that um, once we are reconnected and unclouded by pain and fear, again, in beliefs that were implanted in us, once we release these ways of being, then our connection to ourselves, to others, mm. to source becomes apparent. And this is what leads to healing, a feeling of isolation, of separateness, and of being completely alone, I agree, is the worst suffering imaginable. And so all modalities are employed to dispel the illusion of separateness. Because I like as I said earlier, we are really all connected all of the time. It's our awareness that has to percolate. And mm. that's where I feel we can assist and walk beside someone. The other mm. thing is, is that it's very important. It's been my experience that it's important to walk beside and to be a loving witness. And that we are just a manifestation of our client's intention to heal. Oh, I like that. We, yeah. we do not heal them. We are employed as a loving witness and a colleague in their trajectory. So all healing is self-healing. They are healing themselves and locating other humans as loving witnesses. And I, mm -hmm. I perceive myself as that. Um, it doesn't mean we don't do our homework, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, we, we are present. And I, I think one of the beauties of these human incarnations is that standing beside another promotes healing. Hmm. And and so we are here for with each other. Oh, cool. Well, you see, that brings me, makes me think of another question that is important to all of us because many people now, well, we all actually have access to the internet and we read a lot. So very often you will hear people say, yes, yes, I know about that. I know we are one. I know this. I know as if knowing was enough. People have accumulated knowledge or have practiced many modalities and still find themselves back to square one. What are your thoughts on that? And I remember you saying, talking about take a stance. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, when I was saying take a stance, I think at this time we are being asked to not just release the suffering, but the next step is to take a stance. We're being asked to have responses to what is going on and that we have to collectively choose how we want to move forward. So it isn't just enough now to release the pain. It's now what are we going to do? 
and um, and so we're being asked to take a stand. That is how I see it. So healing is a process. First, it's releasing the pain, excavating the beliefs that are standing in the way of moving forward. And then how are we going to join humanity with a larger focus and help each other to move forward? I, I think that's what's going on now. It's choosing where you stand given the situation, and then how are you going to activate? And with some people, Vivian, I feel it's important for them to know at the same time that if we heal ourselves, we are still elevating humanity. It is still a contribution because we are, again, due to being interconnected, once we reduce our pain, elevate our awareness, that is a ripple, that has a ripple effect as the stone in a pond. Huh. So if you're healthier, if you're feeling better, if you're closer to your heart, your soul, then you are going to affect me and I affect another and another and another. So I'm not saying that each of us has to do these big, loud contributions. And very, mm -hmm. it's very important and it's good work to heal oneself. You are contributing. It isn't selfish. In fact, I, mm -hmm. I tell my Reiki students, even if you're not ready to heal someone else or your dog or your plant, work on yourself. You are contributing with every moment that you either ask the Reiki energy to heal or using Reiki for any other positive reason, this helps to elevate. Yeah. No, it's all it's connected. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it always starts with, uh, with yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, exactly. And you know, going back to what I said earlier, we, we've read a lot, we've taken master classes or listen to seminars and yes, yes, I know, I know you hear that very often. Mm -hmm. But how really can we help uh, people? I would say, make a step, take, take responsibility in their own transformation, because it's not easy when you think about it, you know, it's to let go or to quiet the ego to let Wait, the oneness come up. I'm going to interrupt you. We cannot make anyone do that. Exactly. It doesn't work. It is, it is sharing our knowledge and sharing our modalities and having them in, observe how that goes. Each person must decide what, when, and how much. We cannot force it. It has to be, we have to... In my opinion, we make space for people to make healthier choices. And, and so there are times when it requires patience. And we also, in my opinion, we're, we sometimes need to release our agenda. Because it's our agenda. We want them 
to heal. We want them to um, find their passion. We want them to release the pain. But it's been my experience, Vivian, that some people are not ready. Mm-hmm. They they um, they're not ready for whatever the reason. And one of the things I've learned over time is to respect their process and to not impose my excitement or urgency for them to learn something that I want them to learn. So mm-hmm. we can we can present, we can guide it invited mm-hmm. but it's the choice of the individual soul and sometimes their trajectory needs all of that time oh, I you know it is yeah. not it is not for me to control and even though i i see someone and i crave that they <laughs> release something that I can see clearly. It's that isn't how it works. Mm-hmm. But I was referring to giving people some directions. You know, it's like when you said to a meat eater, you have to become vegetarian. Yeah, but how how do I do that? <laughs> you know, so in that sense, how to live in oneness, how to release all of that, like some directions, for example, like one we hear very often from great speakers, it's to be of service, for example. Oh, well. You know what I mean? That it, On that note, um, to be of service is uh, one of the best ways to, to find yourself is to be of service to others. And to be of service expands us, teaches us so much. Uh, yes, I, I, I feel that... Um, For me, as I was um, in the family I just described, um, I personally found that being in service to to others was the only thing that made sense to me. And to this day, I still feel the same way. Professionally, there's Mm. no place I'd rather be. And yes, I do highly suggest. I also suggest if invited <laughs> that um in, with reiki there are daily practices to mm-hmm. relocate what we might describe as the center um to um take reiki and to do a daily healing on mm-hmm. oneself and this like meditation reconnects us to other parts of ourselves, other realms. And also, from my observation, it deepens our sense of gratitude and compassion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. If, um, if we can sense more of the need for compassion, we can then see ourselves through a softer lens as well as the rest of the world. Again, elevating oneself and elevating Mm -hmm. consciousness um there are a lot of parts of reiki such as the five precepts um which are um ways of living described um to dr yusui um who founded reiki or rediscovered reiki i should say the five precepts are good to study 
to remember what's important to help ground us mm-hmm. so that all of these uh, little quotes we read and these nice sayings make more sense to us on a deeper level rather than just blah, blah, blah level. Exactly. Um, it's very easy to repeat all of these moments. <laughs> but, no. uh, yeah. but if we take moments on a daily basis to go inside, plus yeah. the Reiki energy infusing it, we have a greater connection and these become our own, not just gathered notes. Oh, well said. Well said. I like it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, people have to remember to be in service doesn't mean to forget about yourself. You have to do self-care. You have to do self-transformation. Oh, it's well said. Absolutely. Now, we don't have much time, but I want you to talk about the Akashic Record. So, <laughs> as a spiritual practice, Reiki has evolved in time. We know that in the West, mm-hmm. at least. But you yourself, as a professional, have brought into your practice other tools, such as the Akashic Record. So, can you explain to us what it is and how the two, Reiki and Akashic Records, uh, intersect? Happily, yes. The Akashic Records are an ethereal source um, in which all of our, all souls record. So, um, for instance, everything we have said, done, felt, every way we have behaved in our complete, in our soul's complete being. So, um, this involves past, present, and beyond uh, the trajectory of our soul, so that uh, we can ask the records any question about our existence, including past lives, including present day, um, any question we have. And so it is a great source of information and healing. Plus, the Akashic records are where, when we are consulting them, they're aware of the person they're speaking with completely, as well as an intermediary. So let's say I'm the conduit for you, if you come to me to um, help you access your records, they're going to use me because they know my experience. They're going to use all of my modalities to help Mm. you heal. So how do they intersect? I believe in many ways. Number one, they're both healing sources. They are both emanating from pure love. Mm. So they are facets of the same gorgeous diamond. The records um, are pure information and love. Reiki is healing and love. So there's no way to completely separate them. And um, when I first started consciously accessing the records, I was told that I had been accessing them for over 30 years. I just didn't have a name. Ah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So this great source, again, it's it's a non-physical zone where the records are. Some people feel it's the collective consciousness. Some people feel it's the higher self. And I say it's all of it. Okay. Okay. Um, and I joke about it and I call them my boys, but really it's beyond gender. But there's even a little bit of a sense of humor in there as well. And so we can consult the records in a session and get to the bottom of the source of the pain, the situation, mm-hmm. the pattern, and we can use Reiki to heal the pain, the pattern, the source of the dysfunction. And the records also can supply us with very pragmatic um, strategies to deal with daily life. Also, it isn't just about healing in the records. One of my clients is an independent filmmaker, and she goes into the records to see which directors and actors would be most resonant with her project. Ah, So we also have that other aspect, or people are writing a book and they're stuck, and the records might say to her, divide it in four chapters, and it will flow. I mean, they're they're just like amazing in pragmatic situations, Uh as well as the deepest, deepest emotional, spiritual questions that are posed. I see what you mean. So within one session, we might go from, you know, should I buy this land in, you know, Nevada or Nigeria (laughs) to um, why, why did my father leave our house for 18 months and why did he just reappear? Mm, okay. You know, that there's so many things that we hold inside us that live in us, and the records are brilliant with Reiki and other healing modalities mm-hmm. to excavate, describe, mm. and heal. I see. A lot of it is excavation, and the records are really good at that. <laughs> oh that's that's very nice okay yeah yeah oh that's well said oh cool yeah and we say very often many people actually say there is an awakening on the planet we may feel it in different ways but from your perspective how do you see that awakening now on the planet is too large let's say for us in the west you see changes how do you see those good changes that awakening Hmm. How do I see good changes and awakening? You know, like we talked last time, for example, about more people are getting training in hospitals, for example, they accept more. um, Yes, I think that people are now finally able to release a, a black and white, bad or good, wrong or right orientation of where we can find help. Mm-hmm. We we have used the old modalities, the old paradigms, and they're falling away. And people who were not open to the unseen are now willing to at least meet 
halfway to see what it's about. And as a result, my clients, my my students are going from just like people who are very progressive woo-woo to people who are in the concrete sciences and business willing to um, check out and actually be trained in alternative modalities. And so a lot of my students are physicians now mm-hmm. and people who are in their day-to-day ensconced in business and all sorts of very concrete um, professions. And people are now letting go that there's just one way to heal, one way to learn, and they are really, really getting on board with all sorts of modalities that were never accepted. So I think there's been an expansion there, Mm. and that has had an effect. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. I hope that answers yeah. your question. Yes, 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 okay. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, last question. It's if we want humanity to move forward uh, for to, into more consciousness and oneness, uh, there's one way, which is education or um, educational platforms. How would you, mm-hmm. see, if it were possible right now, how would you see Uh, Oh, sure. Um, I think it really, first of all, is very important to meet little ones where they are. And so I'm I'm very interested in in bringing Reiki and uh, the like to very young children. I've taught children in third grade. Ah, And to have programs in schools, uh, children can be taught how to give and receive Reiki. I feel that that would be an enormous, an enormously positive way to spread, first of all, empowerment for the kids themselves. Exactly. But also to instill um, in society the gentleness, the do no harm concepts mm. of Reiki that um, if if we are closer to our center, if we learn how to release emotion rather than have it live in us and hurt us and hurt other people, if, if we can recognize and honor emotions just for being something that comes and goes and that we, if we're taught how to release then there'll be a lot of space for love and returning to balance. So I think uh, Reiki in schools is something that's always been a huge goal of mine. Also to train first responders, to train um, in any medical school environment, be it nursing, be it physicians, be it um, any medical specialty, Uh, not just for the client or the patients, but so medical people could be reminded that they are they are also part of the beating heart and that they deserve nurturing and that they can present their skills from a healthier, more centered stance. So yeah. 
I think if we allow these things to enter institutions, we can, I think it can contribute to world peace because the need to be aggressive, the need to covet, the need to harm would be much reduced. So, yes, I, I believe it has a lot to do with education and availability. And, you know, a lot of my work has been donation to people who really need it, the underserved. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've given um, Reiki and groups to caregivers of Alzheimer's patients. Wow. Yeah. We need to spread the word, and it is spreading. Reiki is spreading the word itself, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I would add to that, uh, just also for anyone as a first aid kit for spirituality mm -hmm. and everyday life, it's like the basic knowledge that everyone should have, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's Reiki or something similar. But I mean, this opening the door of something. Yes, it opens, Reiki opens doors to yourself, to connecting with others, to connecting to source, and to locating all sorts of delicious, fun ways to express your soul. It, Reiki is a door in every way. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> cool. Okay, so uh, to wrap up, a few words for the listeners you want to add? <clears throat> I... I, again, want to emphasize that separation is definitely, separateness is definitely the source of disease. And we have many, many, many ways to relocate our connectedness. And it is my pleasure to serve in any way possible to that end. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. And I would like to end with a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. We do not have a walk in space. We, uh, I'm sorry, we do not have yeah, to, to walk in space or on water to experience a miracle. The real miracle is to be awake in the present moment. Walking on the green earth we realize the wonder of being alive. So thank you so much, Wendy, for your time with us and a cup of tea. I am sure that our discussion will help people understand and experience healing from a conscious level. We all need to move out of the survival mode and suffering for conscious living for ourselves and humanity. So thank you all for being with us and I hope that today's episode inspired you to open yourself to the oneness of this life and the universe. That's the 21st century awakening path. Knowing that the universe is a field of consciousness in which we are all part of and made of is not enough. Attaining it is our purpose. It's time to remember who we truly are and it all starts with a journey to the don't know mind. Together, let's move humanity forward. 
I am Viviane Casimir, and this is a monthly podcast. Follow us on the Voice America platform for great insights and friendly talks with a cup of tea. And see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this month's episode of Tea Break with Viviane Casimir. Tune in next month for another new empowering episode. Until then, have a nice cup of tea and a clear mind. <laughs>